Good morning. I'm Carrie Godbold. Our reading this morning is from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us. God created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Carrie, for our scripture lesson. And as always, we're very thankful for our worship band who leads us so well. They do such an awesome job. <clears throat> Great experience this morning, so we appreciate y'all doing that. Uh, as we prepare to hear God's word together, I want to encourage you to be open to God's spirit. Let us be uh, centering ourselves in his presence this morning. So let's join together in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your holy word. It is always a light unto our path and a way for us to find guidance for life. So Lord, in this moment together, as we gather here, we ask that you come Holy Spirit and, and guide us. Open our minds, open our hearts to hear your will for us, your word. And we place before you ourselves as our lives on the potter's wheel to be shaped and molded into the people you call us to be. So minister to us now, God. We open ourselves to your word. In in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, every year we have the opportunity, the joy, of taking a group of youth in our church who are completing the sixth grade through an experience called confirmation. Have any of y'all ever been through confirmation? Anybody here? Yeah. Some of you have? Okay, good. Yeah, so you know what confirmation's about. It's a, it's a time that uh, we offer for youth of that age uh, to a chance to explore their faith, a chance for them to bring questions they have about the Christian faith. And, um, you know, we feel like during that age they're, they're asking those kind of questions. <clears throat> and hopefully what we desire out of that is they're going to end up confirming their faith. That's the word confirmation. They've confirmed their faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, the goal of the uh, whole experience is to teach them what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But along that process, they get to um, explore things about the church and our Methodist heritage. And so I thought it would be neat for us, as a, all of us, to join with, in with them in this experience and uh, spend some time rediscovering and think, exploring our, what it means to be a Methodist Christian. Um, I don't know how many of you have have been through the class before, but so uh, uh, next three weeks, we're going to be exploring our Methodist heritage. For some of you, that's going to be a rediscovery of things you've already learned. For others of you, it's going to be something uh, new to you because you've never done that. So we're going to try to do that together. I I remember growing up and uh, my, my grandfather, he was big into genealogy. And so he retraced our family history all the way back to the Revolutionary War, to the European continent and it's kind of amazing. I learned uh, during that time why the name Lee was passed down through every generation of my family, <clears throat> because uh, we are supposedly, according to him, we're descendants of Robert E. Lee. Of course, that's something we don't talk about a whole lot in our world today. <clears throat> but uh, uh, he, even, he even said uh, we're connected somehow to Pocahontas. I never knew if he was serious about that. Or he was just saying some kind of tale. I wasn't sure about that either. But it was kind of fascinating, or at least it is to me today. Back when I was younger, 
I didn't find it so fascinating. I thought it was boring. I mean, he, all he wanted to talk about was dead people <clears throat> and things of the past. And I just thought that was really boring. But uh, how unfortunate because my grandfather's not alive today. And I would love to hear those stories that he longed to tell me about our heritage. Because what I realized as an adult is how important my heritage is to me. I mean, it's, it shapes who I am today. And that's why I think you see all these Ancestry.com things on, t- on television. People are excited about finding out their roots and helps them share something about their lives. You know, I find out understanding my heritage helps me to understand how, who I am today, and it, it helps me understand um, how to live in the present and even into the future. So understanding our heritage is something I think is really important. And that's why over the next three weeks, we're going to be seeking to rediscover our Methodist heritage. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, I could care less about our Methodist heritage. I mean, I don't go to this church because it's a Methodist church. Uh, I could care less about Methodist heritage, about John Wesley and all that. But what I would say to you is that uh, you are a part of a Methodist church uh, today. And so uh, even though you may not claim to be a Methodist, you are attending a Methodist church. And because of that, uh, this is part of your heritage too. And I think what we'll learn together is that our heritage shapes so much of who we are today as Zachary United Methodist Church. And understanding our heritage can help. It it can shape the kind of Christian that we choose to be in the future. And so that's what we're going to be trying to explore today. Um, Now, when it comes to our Methodist heritage, you really can't talk about our Methodist heritage apart from a guy by the name of John Wesley. Hopefully you've heard of his name. He's uh, accredited as having been the founder of the Methodist Church. But when it comes to talking about John Wesley, what you need to know is that we do not consider John Wesley to be a saint of the Methodist Church. Uh, he, um, we don't venerate him. We don't worship him. We don't see any pictures or statues of him in the, in the worship area of the church or anything like that. He was just a guy. And if you read his story, you find out he had lots of faults. There are lots of weaknesses. He made lots of mistakes. But he connected with God in a way that transformed the world that we live in. I mean, he's recognized as one of the top uh, 10 most influential Christians over the last 2,000 years. Uh, And the way that he lived out his faith, I believe, has something to say to us today. And so that's why we're going to take a look at it. How his faith um, shaped us and how it connects with our lives today. That's what we're after. Now, again, in order to understand uh, our heritage You need to be reminded of some things that I hope you learned back when you were in high school history or college history. Some of you may have forgotten this. Some of you may know it quite well. But uh, the world that John Wesley grew up in, in that time, he was in England. And it was a very difficult time for the church. He was a part of the Church of England. The Church of England had gone through just tumultuous crises and conflicts over the years. And that's what he came into. In 1532, King Henry VIII was on the throne of England. And the church was ruled by the Pope, which was in the Church of Rome. If you know anything about King Henry VIII, you know he went through a series of wives trying to find one that would suit him. And uh, every time he would find a new wife, he would ask the Pope to annul his marriage to the other wife. And this went on several times. And finally the Pope said, you know, I think we've had enough of annulments. (laughs) And that didn't go over too well with the king. Uh, In fact, there was money that was, uh, a lot of money that was going out of the British Isles as their tie to the Church of Rome. And so King Henry VIII decided, he announced, you know, look, the Church of England is no longer going to be under the rule of the Pope or the Church of Rome. And he set himself up to be the head of the church. As you can imagine, 
caused, uh, set in a series, a lot of conflict, and uh, that continued on into uh, the years ahead between the Church of England and the Church of Rome for about 200 years. And then in the midst of all that, you have the Protestant Reformation that's beginning to emerge, and um, it was led by the Calvinists. And this began to move the Church of England even further away from the Roman Church, the, the Roman Catholic Church in Rome. And then about that time, you have a, um, a certain queen that uh, laid heir to the throne, and you remember her name was Mary. <clears throat> and Mary was a staunch Roman Catholic, and so she sought to bring the Church of England back under the rule of the Pope at the Church of Rome. <laughs> and, you know, she, one of the ways she did that was uh, she rounded up 300 of the bishops of the Church of England and had them executed, which garnered her the name Bloody Mary, if you remember. And then after Mary's reign, you had her sister Elizabeth who took over the throne. And Elizabeth realized the church couldn't keep going back and forth like this. It needed to find some way to become uh, more stable. And um, she agreed with her father that the Church of England should be on its own. But she sought for some compromise, a middle way where between the, the Roman Catholic church and the Calvin Protestants that were a part of that. And she was trying to find that middle way. So she offered a compromise. It was known as the Elizabethan Settlement. And uh, the problem with that is anytime you give a compromise between two competing sides, nobody's ever happy. But they weren't so unhappy that they weren't willing to go along with it for a while. So we have these conflicts going on between the Church of England and the Church of Rome, between the Roman Catholics and the, and the Protestants, and it's going back and forth. And then the church finally starts to settle in and become what we would call the Calvinist-Protestant persuasion. And then another conflict emerged. The Arminianism, Arminianism, that's hard to say, Arminianism <laughs> just uh, began to evolve within the church. And the Calvinists that day, they, they were saying that we are saved only by God's grace. And that was really a, a rebellion against Roman Catholicism because they believed that the Catholics were saying you're saved by good works. You know, if you say enough prayers, if you do enough good, good deeds, then you'll be saved. And the Calvinists said, no, it doesn't work that way. We are saved only by God's grace. And they took that so far as to say, you can't even turn to God on your own. <laughs> they would say that instead, God predetermines. He predetermines that there's only a certain number of people, the elect, who are chosen to be saved and certain ones are not. And those chosen not to be saved, everybody else is going to hell. You may remember this as the uh, doctrine of predestination. You've heard of that before. <clears throat> well, um, it's the idea that God has chosen, he uh, predetermines who's going to be saved and who's not, and you really have no choice in that. Even those who are going to be saved have no choice. And so Arminianism came around saying, it can't be that way. God wants everybody to be saved. But we have a free will that we can choose to either reject God's grace or we can accept God's grace. Good works are important, but we're not saved by good works we're saved by choosing to accept God's grace. There's conflict going on between, between these two groups within the church. Eventually, the Church of England did move over toward Arminianism and became uh, that persuasion, but then it also retained some of the uh, Roman Catholic practices and, and uh, influence. So it developed in what we call high church worship, very liturgical in its worship at the Church of England, but then, then the Puritans came along. There were a group of people who said, no, we don't like all this high church liturgical worship. We want more informal worship. We want like a pathway service. We want more singing. We want more, 
We want more uh, uh, preaching. We want more um, less liturgy. That's what we want. And there became a conflict within the church over this. So some of the Puritans uh, felt as though they were being pushed out of the church because there was not a tolerance to their way of worship or what they desired. There was little religious tolerance. And so one congregation decided they would leave England. They got on a ship called the Mayflower. They got on the Mayflower and they went to a, a continent called America and they, the colonies over there to, to try to establish a, um, a new England where there was less religious persecution and more religious freedom. But other Puritans remained and they fought against the church and they actually led a revolution. They overtook the church and they actually ended up killing the king of England. And um, years later, then the high church folk, they rose up and took it back over. So you got this thing going back and forth, back and forth. And so at the end of the 1600s, you have the church developed into what they described as being an Armenian high church Anglican church. And that's what it had become. And then the age of reason emerges. Now, I'm almost through with the history lesson this morning. So just stick with me a little bit. This is all going to make sense here in a moment. But you had the age of reason, the enlightenment that took place. And uh, it, was, it was the idea that salvation uh, doesn't come through religion at all. It comes through reason. And we all have the ability to work out our own faith on our own apart from religion. And people in that day and time, after all that they had been through, eagerly took to this idea. Because they were sick and tired of the church fighting over religion. They were sick and tired of people fighting over one belief and another belief and killing each other over their differences and stuff. So being enlightened by reason began to emerge as the dominant thought in the favored way. So was considered to be um, something that you looked down on. Uh, the worst thing you could be accused of or described in that day and time was being an enthusiast, too enthusiastic about your religious beliefs. Sound familiar to some of what goes on today in society? Uh, but it seemed as though reason was beginning to emerge and becoming the dominant way of thought and taking over all of England and Europe. And that takes us to the 1700s. And this is the world into which John Wesley was born. In 1703, uh, he was the 15th of 19 children. You thought you had it bad. <clears throat> uh, he was a child that was born. And um, he was born of parents, uh, Samuel and Susanna Wesley. I ought to be asking some of these questions in my confirmation class, if they're remembering this, the youth. But, uh, you know, and there's some other things you need to know about what's going on in the world he lived in at that time. And that is with the rise of reason and the decline of religion, uh, the lack of moral values began to permeate all of society. And so you had uh, crime running rampant. You had um, immorality running rampant. So people began to try to find a better way of life from all of this. And so they started turning back to religion. In, out of Germany, there came a movement called Pietism. And um, they claimed that salvation was not to be found through reason, but rather it's found in your heart. It's found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And John Wesley's parents, Samuel and Susanna, were heavily influenced by this idea. <clears throat> and uh, um, Samuel was a priest within the Anglican, Anglican Church. Uh, his, wife, Sam, his wife, Susanna, uh, was committed to instructing her children in this way of thought. So John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, they grew up in this world, being raised in this way, a world that's not too different from the world that we live in today, with all of this religious pluralism, 
diversity. Um, you had the polarization between various sides and moral decay because of turning away from religion. Well, as a child, the story is told that John, one night their house caught on fire and all these children to rescue. And John was one of the last to be rescued and they had to reach from upstairs to get him. And, and uh, he was, his mother described that moment using words of Zechariah saying he, is, uh, he was a brand plucked from the burning. And from that day forward, John Wesley believed that God had a greater purpose for his life. He, as a teenager, felt the call to follow in his father's footsteps to become a, a priest in the Anglican Church. So he goes to Oxford University and he studies uh, in this area and he becomes a scholar. He then goes to Lincoln College <coughs> where he uh, got his Master's of Divinity degree and he was ordained as an Anglican priest in the Anglican Church. And he became a teacher at Oxford as well. But it was about this time in the mid-1720s that after all of that, John still felt there was something missing in his life. Even though he had studied the Christian faith, he, go to, he would go to church regularly, he knew the Bible, and he read the Bible, all these things, he still felt as though something was missing. He described himself as being a nominal Christian at best. And so he began to search for ways that he might experience more of God in his life, that God might become more real to him. So he started getting up every morning at 4 a.m. to pray. He um, would read the Bible daily. He would go every day to, the, to, the, to the, have communion and sacraments. He worshipped regularly. He started meeting with Christian friends on a regular basis to encourage each other in the faith and explore ideas about faith. He desperately wanted to become an authentic Christian, not just a halfway Christian or a, an almost Christian. This became his heart's desire. It became his life's ambition. And about that time, as he was serving as a priest in the church, his brother Charles was attending Oxford University as a student. And he called his brother and he said, you know, I sent word to his brother saying, you know, we, we would love for you to come back to the university and help us. We have a group of people here that have a hunger for God just like you do, and we need someone to lead them. Would you come lead us? And so John agreed to do so. And he gets there, and there's a small group of college students. And they start meeting together three days a week to study the classics and to study the scripture. They pray together regularly. They attend sacraments every day. They worship together. They serve the poor together. And being a part of the university, they were watched by other people there. And remember, this is the day when religious fervor was looked down upon. And so they started making fun of John Wesley and this group of college students. They called them Bible and the Bible with them everywhere. Uh, they called them the Holy Club because they were like enthusiasts you know, about their uh, religion. They called them Methodist because of their methodical way of living out their faith. John Wesley kind of liked that idea of being called a Methodist, so it stuck. <clears throat> uh, but after graduating, it, um, they, these students spread out throughout the country, and they began to try to teach this way of the faith and how to connect with God, but it still was a very small following. In 1735, John Wesley's father died. And that really put John at the crossroads of his life. He thought about going back becoming a priest, but that didn't work out. And then he remembered his father's dream of becoming a missionary to the colonies. And so he decided what he would do. He got a group of people together and some other Methodist-minded folk, and he set off to be a missionary to the, the colonies, and he went to the colony of Georgia. And when he arrives in Georgia, he's got great ambition. He's uh, excited. He's got great dreams. But the truth is his missionary journey was an absolute failure. It was a disaster. He, he tried to convert the Indians, and that was a total disaster. He tried to be a good parish priest 
to the people there. And they didn't accept him. Uh, they thought he was too uh, much of an enthusiast, too rigorous in his way to the faith. And so he didn't get much response there. He tried to uh, put together people in small groups so they could grow in their faith and his model of ministry. And few people attended. He actually fell in love when he was in the uh, um, Georgia colony. And he was trying to make the decision whether he should marry this woman or whether he should stay celibate because of his ministry. And while trying to make the decision... Another man proposes to her, and she accepts his proposal and ends up marrying him outside the church. So John Wesley gets married, and he excommunicates her from the church. <laughs> now, that didn't go over too well <clears throat> with uh, her newly husband, and so he filed charges against John Wesley. And uh, you know, that went on for several um, a few months, <laughs> going back and forth. And finally, John Wesley had enough of it. He was so discouraged. In the middle of the night, he escapes, gets on a ship, headed back for England with his tail tucked between his legs. Abject failure, he felt. As he was sailing back to England, <clears throat> a storm, great storm was encountered, and he really feared for his life. And in that moment, he realized, you know, I don't have an assurance of my life if I die. He had no peace that passes on understanding. And what made it worse is there was a group of German pietists on that same ship who in the middle of the storm, they seemed to be at perfect peace. They were praying, they were singing. And he looked at them and he realized how inadequate his own faith was. He'd been trying all of his life <clears throat> to find that closeness to God, to be that authentic kind of Christian, and yet he realized he did not have any assurance. He had no peace. He had no sense of God's presence in his life. And looking at these German pietists on the ship, he said, I so long for what they have. But he got back to England. He continued this search for what was missing in his faith. And finally, one night, he found it. On Sunday night, May 21st, 1738, his brother Charles had an experience of the Holy Spirit that totally transformed his life. And he tells his brother John about it. And John so desires to have that same kind of experience. And then later that week, it was on a Wednesday, May 24th, 1738, that John finally has the experience that he's been longing for and searching for. He describes it in his journal, words on the screen. He says, My experience in the colonies and a fearful journey back home by ship, in which we nearly perished, led me to see how empty was my faith. <clears throat> I was afraid of death. I felt no assurance or peace as a result of my faith. Upon returning to London, I doubted that I was even a Christian. On May 24th of that year, in the evening I went very unwillingly, to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Romans. About a quarter after nine, a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change that works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. And saved me from the law of sin and death. I now had an assurance of the love of God. And I could not but speak about it. Some thought me to be a madman. Some called me an enthusiast. But I had been as one who was dead and now was alive again. I continued to bear witness to what God had done. And to meet with others to encourage them in with the faith. And to understand all that I had now experienced. John Wesley had been longing and yearning and searching 
to become an authentic Christian, to experience with the reality of his faith. But there was one thing that was missing, and that night on Aldersgate, he found it. He'd been trying to find God by knowing God through his intellect, by trying to serve God through his hands and do those good works. But what was missing was what he found in his heart, that experience of God, the assurance of God's love in his heart. And that was just as simple as trusting in God's love for him. It was accepting God's grace and letting God love him. This radically changed his life. So he started preaching about it everywhere he could. Um, he tried to help people understand that we are to trust in the grace of God. That changes everything, that God loves you. And then you respond to that with your life. And one of the first places that he preached right after this experience was in the Oxford University Chapel. And he preached a sermon he entitled Salvation by Faith. And the text that he used was the one that we have for us this morning. It's Paul's words where he says, "For gra- By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that none may boast. But Wesley never forgot the second part of that verse that says, For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So we accept and we trust in God's love for us. Our salvation is found through faith in God's grace for us. And then in response to that grace, we live out our life. As Paul says, we uh, are saved by God for good works. Again, this radically changed both John and Charles Wesley's understanding of the faith and their life. Charles went on to write many of the hymns that we often use in worship and uh, today as a way of proclaiming this, this gospel he understood. John would go on to preach throughout the country every place that would let him. Most of the priests wouldn't let him preach in their churches because he was too enthusiastic and stirred up the people too much. <clears throat> so he partnered with John Whitfield, who was preaching out in the fields, on the street corners, everywhere around, and, and thousands, literally thousands, sometimes 10, and, 10 to 30,000 people at once would come and listen to them preach, and they would hear John Wesley, and they would become saved. I mean, it, it, and then John Wesley, what he did, he said, it's, it's got to be more than just a revival service. He would organize them in groups, small groups, where they would meet together regularly to encourage one another and continue their growth in faith afterwards. A true revival swept the entire continent. This is our heritage. And we're going to talk more about the weeks ahead of us. But uh, 51 years later, the entire British Isles were totally transformed by this Methodist movement. Now, I know you didn't come here this morning to hear a history lesson. <laughs> um, we, what we want to know is, what all does this have to do with our lives today? Well, I think it does speak to our lives today. First of all, remembering John Wesley reminds us of how the darkest moment of his life preceded that movement that launched the Wesley or the, the uh, Methodist revival that transformed the world. When John is coming back on that ship from the colonies back to England, he's at the lowest point of his life. He believes he's, his, his life, everything he's done up to that moment has just been a complete failure. He's failed as a missionary. He's failed his father. Uh, he has failed in his relationships. His just life is just a complete failure. And, and he's, he's dealing with this. This is the darkest moment in his life. But God's not finished with him yet. 
Uh, had it not been for that darkest moment in his life, Wesley may have never in the way that he did and experienced that transformation. And we might not be here today as modern-day Methodists. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. Here may be in that place where you're considering it a dark place. You may be in a part of your life where you're feeling like it's all been for naught. It's, I'm, I'm been a failure. I've been a failure in what I'm trying to do, accomplish. I've been a failure in my career, failure in my marriage, failure in my relationships. You, just, you may be feeling like a failure. And there's a darkness around you that you just can't seem to overcome. And what I want you to hear today is remember John Wesley's story. Remember how he hung on. And so I would say to you to hang on tight, just as he did. Because sometimes God is working in the midst of those darkest moments to do something we can't see, to bring about a, a glorious moment that we can't even see yet. We trust in God's love for us. We trust in that God is working things out in ways we can't see yet. And so we hold on. So the message we hear from John Wesley is don't give up. Continue to trust in God. The second thing I want you to remember from Wesley's story is that Wesley sought to do something that happened 200 years before his time with Queen Elizabeth. <clears throat> he sought to bring about a way that we as Christians could walk that, that middle way, that via media. It, it's trying to, to not be a part of the polarization that we have against one another where you're always opposed to other sides, but rather you're trying to walk in that middle way where you look at the people on the left and you look at the people on the right and you realize that we can learn from the, you know, some of the things they say is right, some of the things they say is good, and, and we can learn from them and we can try to forge a way down the middle where the best of both can be brought together and held together. In Wesley's day, there were people who were saying, reason is the way. And there were others who were saying, no, piety is the way. Wesley said, it's not either or. It's both and. Both reason and piety uh, can be held together. Reason and religion can be held together. They should be held together, he said. He sought out not an either or kind of faith, but a both and kind of faith. When people that we are only saved by God's grace, not by good works. And the Roman Catholics were saying, wait a minute, your works are important. John Wesley said, yeah, it's not either or, it's both and. Of course we're supposed to be striving for good works and sanctification, but that's not what saves us. We're only saved through God's grace and faith in Christ. So they, they can come together. And some believe that the evangelical gospel was the way where you try to save everybody's souls. Others believe that the social gospel was the way where you're, you reach out and you minister to the poor and you help them build schools and you take care of their physical needs. And John Wesley said, it's not either or, it's both and. We need to be doing both. It, it, it's so much easier to be an either or kind of Christian. It really is. You see this all in our world today where we like things that way, where they're black or white, right or wrong, no gray area. It's easy to know what side you're on. We're kind of wired that way. That's why we have this history of conflict over who's right and who's wrong and which side you own and the division and polarities about things. But often the truth is found somewhere in the middle. It's harder to be in that tension between the two. It really is. We see this in our country today. Our country is so divided and polarized over every issue you can possibly imagine. I mean, it's literally destroying our country. It's destroying even our church. But the truth is, both sides have something to say. If we would just listen to one another, 
And that's what Methodists seek to do. I, I believe there is no more greater time in this, that's needed for us to be Methodist in our country today than it is for now. So are you willing to stand in the via media? Are you willing to try to, uh, to walk between, uh, in the middle, listen to one another so that you can help bring the best of both sides together? Because that's what we stand for as Methodists. And I believe that this is our greatest strength that we have to bring to the issues that we're facing today. And then finally, I love the idea of how John Wesley deeply yearned to be a wholly committed Christian, an authentic Christian. That was his life's goal. And this is what we value as part of our heritage. This is what we value as Methodists. We believe that we are called to wholly surrender our lives to God every day. John Wesley's prayer, he recorded lots of his prayers, but his prayers every day was, was, Lord, all that I am and all that I have, I offer you today. Use me for your glory. Help me to serve you today. How different would our families, our lives, our marriages, our relationships, our community, the world we live in, how different it would be if we made that our prayer and our mission every day. God, all that I am, all that I have, I offer to you today. Use me. Help me to serve you, to glorify you. Do you realize the power that you have for the kingdom of God when you are wholly surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, this is who we strive to be. It's part of our DNA. It shapes what we focus on here, even at Zachary Methodist Church. It's the model of ministry we use. And this is the invitation that I invite you to consider today, is that we would all strive to be modern-day Methodists. In that spirit, I want to pray with you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the witness of this man, John Wesley. I thank you, God, for this congregation of modern-day Methodists. God, help us to lay hold of the heritage and long to be those authentic kind of Christians that are wholly committed to following Jesus. May we be the kind of Christians who hold on to you in those dark moments, trusting in your ability to redeem and to save and to bring about good, even when we can't see it. May we be those kind of Christians who are willing to forge that that via media, the, the middle way, where we're willing to listen, to be patient, understanding one another, and stand in that difficult place that brings people together. God, may we be the kind of Christians who seek to be solely and wholly surrendered unto you, that all we have, all we are, and all that we do is seeking your glory. These things we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Let us all stand and sing our final song together.